Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 100 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app to listen to them all. My guest on today's show is Faisal N., a man whose remarkable success in business is closely aligned with the success he enjoys as a daily meeting maker in Alcoholics Anonymous. For over 16 years, he has worked his program from the middle of the herd, with ongoing service commitments to his AA club and continuous sponsorship of other men. Though he functioned with the disease for many years and built an outstanding business, alcohol and cocaine abuse accompanied him on his road to personal ruin. Along the way, he added workaholism to the toxic mix, which made him oblivious to the needs of his family and friends. But it was the fear of not getting what he wanted and or losing what he had that drove his frantic desire to succeed. By the time Faisal hit the rooms of AA at the age of 37, he was finally ready to concede to his family and his innermost self that he was indeed an alcoholic in desperate need of help. Faisal's story begins with a Pakistani boy raised in a strong but loving family whose religious convictions forbade the use of alcohol. When his family moved to Beirut and a civil war broke out, Faisal was sent to an elite boarding school in England from ages 7 to 18. There he encountered, but learned how to overcome, the prejudice leveled at him by students whose aristocratic parents were as absent as his. By the time he was 18, he was ready to shed the image of second-class citizen imposed on him at the school. He came to the United States, where he attended college and really learned to drink. After college, he founded a company and set out to slay the business world. His familial role and duties as the oldest male created additional pressure to his ceaseless yet anxious drive to succeed. Unfortunately, alcohol and later drugs hitched along on that drive and started the slow but steady decline. Lost weekends and benders on top of 16-hour workdays eventually exacted a terrible toll on his life, and he found himself in jeopardy of losing his wife and kids. After seriously contemplating suicide, enough was enough for Faisal, and he crossed the threshold of the last house on the block, AA. He has been sober since. There's a lot more to Faisal's story that will enthrall you for the next 70 minutes. I invite you to settle into another excellent episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, Faisal N. My name is Faisal. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Faisal, and welcome to the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Thank you, Howard. I'm thrilled that you're able to be here with me today. You're one of the people who, two years ago, a little over two years ago when I started this, I had a short list of people who I wanted to interview because they were friends and they were people whose stories I knew a little bit of and or a lot of and they were particularly captivating personalities to me and you were on that list so I'm glad that after thank a couple you. years you and I have had the chance to get together. Thank you, thank you and thank you for doing this. Well you're welcome, it's, it means a lot to me to be able yeah. to be of service. I know you're a service guy too and we're going to talk about some of that stuff. So you and I go to this meeting every Thursday and then afterwards we have lunch in the church's cafe after the meeting, and I've always felt like that brings men even closer together than just going to a meeting and splitting afterwards. How do you feel about being able to break bread with men after the meeting? Yeah, I mean, I think that's how 
the spirit moves through us, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. That bonding process, that kinship, that expression of love, not in a structured way, but unstructured way. And I know your background, and so, you know, a Jewish guy and a Muslim guy go to a church. <laughs> Sounds like the beginning of a joke. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a Jewish yeah, guy and yeah, a Muslim yeah. guy walk into a church, and it turns out they're both alcoholics. <laughs> that's right, that's right. There's got to be a yeah, good punchline yeah, in there yeah. somewhere, Faisal. You know, got to be AA, man. Being an alcoholic, it's, it's not talked about. It's a secretive thing within families. It's not spoken of, and if it is spoken of, it's spoken of in whispers. It's spoken of as a moral failing. In your background and in your family history, how is alcohol and alcoholism perceived? Wow. Uh, well said. I mean, Episcopalians are Catholic light. What I call Muslims is uh-huh. that we're Jewish heavy. Uh, and so we are very much thou shalt not, and if you do this, then this is going to happen. And we, we get that from the Torah. Mm-hmm. And so not only that, but I come from a very middle class, by the book, conservative Muslim family, in all the good ways. And this is such an abhorment socially, culturally, religiously, that even though I like to make fun of myself and say I'm really a coconut, I'm brown from the outside and I'm very white from the inside. I've gone to boarding school in England from the age of seven. You know, I, I, I culturally identify as <laughs> the, the mm-hmm. but family of origin, you still have culture flowing through you. And one of the biggest shames that you can bring on to your family is forget about drugs, alcohol. Mm. Yeah, so it's a huge no-no. My father never drank, my uncles never drank, my aunts never drank. Alcohol has never been a part of the social structure and stuff and whatnot. It's never, you know, it's it's a complete no-no. What is there about alcohol that's such a no-no in the Muslim religion? Think, now please, let me just state, I am not an Absolutely. expert on Islam or Muslim, Islam or Muslims and, and so forth. So a lot of this is just, if, I, if, if it's my opinion, if I get it wrong, please, you know, please excuse me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there is a strict law there that you need to be careful and abstain from alcohol, mm-hmm. gambling. Alcohol and gambling are, are the two vices that are really fawned upon. And you know, whether it's religious or not, that is my family of origin, right? That, I mean, that's how I grew up. Mm-hmm. And I did not drink alcohol in growing up in high school and, mm-hmm. and, and so forth because it was part of my identity as, you know, as who I was, from which family I was. Um, and I held that very strongly coming through the Western school system and so forth. So it was a part of the upbringing process for you by practicing parents. Were they, are they observant? Yes, and I would say they're observant. Uh, Dad is more observant and middle of the road. They're not extremes. Uh, My mother was very liberal in her views and thus letting me, giving my blessing to marry a white Anglo-Catholic female without batting her eye. Hmm. So they're, re- they're spiritual, they're religious, but 
bottom line is they're just good people. Yeah. You know, they just they just didn't drink because that's not. Um, but there is there is a little bit of the Paul Harvey rest of the story on why my dad didn't drink. So when it comes to your family of origin, yeah. we're talking about not fundamentalists. Just you know the 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 middle class in every culture is very much by the book, right? You know, they're just good old people. Mm-hmm. You know, the extremely affluent are prone to, uh, uh, you know, excesses. And the extremely poor, well, they're, you know, they're, they're trying to escape their issues. But the middle class is always upward mobile, get educated, become a doctor, become an engineer, have 2.6 kids, live a good life, you know, be honorable. Uh, all yeah. the good things that every middle class in every culture has. Right? I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of balanced. They're in the middle somewhere. Yeah. My experience, Faisal, has been through the generations. It's only taken two or three generations to get to the point where I'm in an interfaith, intercultural marriage myself. Mm-hmm. But going back just a few generations, we're very orthodox people yes. that had a lot of rules about what to do and what not to do to the extent that the tradition was if you married outside of the religion, the, the Orthodox and the people who were the, the strong rule book believers would actually consider the person deceased, dead. And I saw that happen in my own family to one of my relatives who married outside of the religion. And one of the Orthodox members implemented the ritual that occurs after somebody has died. It's a whole different thing. But that was pretty harsh. I've had the opportunity to be able to do what I wanted, not necessarily with the blessings of everybody. I've had to realize that there are certain people in the family who didn't support my decisions that went against traditional religious norms. Did you have to deal with that? I think so. And I've got a really cool insight Mm -hmm. of why our need for acceptance is so high. And yes, I went to an English boarding school at the age Mm -hmm. of seven when being an Indian or Pakistani in England was not Mm -hmm. chic. And we were the second class citizens and this and that. And uh, being very strong of pride, I identified as that Mm. Pakistani and I am better than you, and part of being Pakistani is I don't drink alcohol and I'm a Muslim. And so, yes, I use that identity uh, as a self-esteem tool Mm -hmm. to hold on to whatever my identity was at the age of seven. From seven to 18, I went to a Church of England boarding school, so, so that was a huge part of me and when I broke that identity with alcohol, all boundaries, I mean, the shame was enormous. I'll bet. Yeah. So yeah. in the yeah. midst of all that, from 7 to 18, whatever reinforcement to the, the norms you had grown up with were sufficient to keep you from drinking and engaging in activities that were outside of the belief system. Yeah. Not only that, but I would pride myself on Nope, I do not drink. 
And I was the captain of rugby. I was the captain of cricket. So I was the <laughs> I was the guy, you know, not hang out yeah. with the guys and stuff. And they're like, well, if you're our friend, you'll drink. I'm like, no, I don't do that. Mm. So at what point did they change? I don't think they changed or didn't change. At 18, I came to the U.S. and for the first two years in university, I did not drink. Mm. Yeah, and I was the captain of the rugby here, and you know, and I, I dated girls and stuff and whatnot. And, but I mean, that alcohol was a very firm bed of my self-esteem or identity. Mm -hmm. Something really bad happened to me at college a couple of years in, which I could not handle. And I remember then, I'm like, I'm just going to just have a drink, a few drinks and stuff. Sure. And, you know, and so that opened a whole Pandora's box. And, uh, you know, with that boundary being broken, it opened up a lot yeah, of stuff. I get that. I get that. Yeah. We're going to go ahead and rewind a little bit to talk about your family of origin. So... Where, where did you grow up? Where was your early life spent? Up to the age of three, I was, we were in Pakistan. And we went from the frying pan to the fire. We went from Karachi, Pakistan. My dad got a job in Beirut, Lebanon. And so at that time, the civil war was just starting in uh -huh. Beirut, Lebanon. And so that's wow. why I got sent to boarding school in England because all the schools had shut down in Lebanon because of the war. Oh. And so my family was in Lebanon. Uh -huh. um, and so I was sent to boarding school in England uh, because of the war. Now, do you have siblings? I do. I have a sister. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, ironically enough, uh, she has not drank for 20 five years, but has not gone to a program. Isn't that something how we, we know the benefits that yeah. the program can offer, yeah. but people who have a tendency to be able to stay sober without it, it's like, what do you say to them? I mean, what's the quality of sobriety? You're, you're a prisoner in your own head. True. You know, so I don't know. So dryity, they yes. call it. Yes. So your family was in Beirut while you were at boarding school, and when you came home on holiday, did you go to Beirut or did you did the family meet elsewhere? Yeah, so twice a year I would go home to Beirut. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then once a year, there was three terms mm -hmm. during a year and you got 30 days at the end of the three, you know, uh, at, the, at the end of the two months for as a vacation and stuff. And so for two of them, I would go back to Beirut and for one of them, I would stay with a friend or a family friend in England. What was it like going back from, from boarding school back to Beirut? Um, you, you know, it's, you have to change many hats, and you learn to change hats because uh -huh. you're going from an environment that is enclosed, that is Anglo. We wore tails and boater hats to school. My school was originally formed in 1275. <laughs> oh, I, uh, all, all, a lot of the royalty from England and stuff and whatnot went there. Mm. And so they brought us up as young Englishmen. Aristocrats. Aristocrats, huh. right? And so one falls into that at school, mm -hmm. and you identify as that at school to be accepted, and then when you go home, 
you're a middle-class Pakistani kid with, you know, mom wearing these funny pajamas, yeah. cooking this food that all the English say it stinks. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and so it's, it's, a, it's a very two-sided life. How did you deal with that when you were a kid? Fortunately, I fought back. And fortunately, I was very good at sports. And so I became the head of school. And if I got bullied, I fought back. Uh But there was a lot of shame around being from Pakistan. And so there was a lot of chopping down of the self-esteem that normally a person would not have to do. Uh, So, yeah, so it was... uh, it was, it was a very second-class existence. Second-class at a school of, for the children of royalty and aristocrats, and yet there you are, and right. you're having to deal with bullying and other things yeah. like that? Well, well, I dealt with it by also lying. <laughs> and uh, they would say, well, Faisal, where are you from? I'm like, well, old chap, I just can't share that. It's top <laughs> secret. And they're like, oh, my God, this guy must be so fucking high and mighty <laughs> that he's not even telling us where he's oh, from. Wow. And, and because I was good at sports and stuff, and uh, they're like, well, well, now you're not like the rest of those donkeys. Uh. You're one of us. And, and, you know, that's a very, being accepted is very alluring, except you're really fooling yourself because yeah. you know that deep down they're not really accepting who you are, they're accepting you because you play sports and, and so forth. So at your core, yeah. as a human being, you are unacceptable to right. the British Raj because you're a secondary person. So you're living your life as a human doing instead of a human being. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So were you doing that throughout... Yes, from the age of 7 to 18, I changed hats very fast. Nobody ever came to my house. Mm -hmm. Um, My friends didn't come to my house. I was this persona Mm -hmm. of coolness and aloof. And a lot of it was a facade to protect the inner stuff. And a lot of this stuff I really found out after I got sober at 37 and worked the steps and looked at it from different point of view rather than, you know, just resentment. So it was highly illuminating at that point as you started to work the steps. The pieces started to come together. And some of the stories that I told myself, Mm -hmm. I had to understand are not true. Mm-hmm. And it's still evolving, right? You're still evolving those stories or dissolving the stories and creating new stories. So, uh, And that's the beauty of recovery is it's very closely related to your own reality. You, you get to see what's real rather than what the ego is protecting you from. Right. Now, you've been sober how long now? 416 2006. So that would make it about 16 and a half years or so. So if I'm doing the math correctly, you didn't really start drinking until you were a late teenager or early 20s? Or when did you first start drinking? Yeah, I would say the real drinking started, I would say, in my late 20s. So late 20s to age 37, 
Yeah. When you get to AA, you know, we might be talking about 12, 15 years of drinking. Yeah, and I would say this jokingly, I had a slight issue with ecstasy, MDMA <laughs> too, uh, at the age of 22. Yeah, I get you, that. You talk about the sense of acceptance, wow. Yeah, especially you know. ecstasy, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah. I did some of that myself and it was just like, you love everybody and yeah. everybody loves you, It's but it's so artificial. But funnily enough, I saw a picture of myself when I was very little with the same ass grin that I have in AA meetings from year yeah. to year. <laughs> and you will not find that grin from the age of seven to 30 something because that little boy that loved people was scared to show his love for people just in case if you rejected me. Yeah, I get that. And that's what's beautiful about doing some of the associated work along with Alcoholics Anonymous when you're doing inner child work or when you're doing any kind of therapy where mm -hmm. there's a, a look back at to try and find the genuine self yeah. that you were and where did that go. And I mean, for me, my genuine self felt so, I was so insecure and so pained and fearful of it that whenever it was I found alcohol, it was the perfect exit strategy from the kind of life I had been living and feeling. When you first started drinking, what were the circumstances and what were you looking for in that initial period of time? You know, a lot of this is obviously looking back. Um, so once I left college, I started my own business. Mm -hmm. Just by happen chance and a lot of hard work, I ran into a lot of success. Mm -hmm. And I was working from 7 in the morning to 11 at night. I was happily married. I had finally arrived. And I had made good for all the investment that was put into me by a middle-class Pakistani mother and father that spent 60% of their income sending me to school. Mm -hmm. And I finally made good. Mm. And look at him. He's got the golden touch. Have you met Mr. So-and-so's son? Mm -hmm. And then the fear of if something happened to this business, what will people say? The fear of losing. Remember the two things that they say, fear of not getting what you want and the fear of losing something that you have? The fear of losing something that I have created so much mm fear and stress that I frequented quite a few quote-unquote gentlemen's clubs and had a quite a few Bacardi and Cokes to just release that pressure from that pressure cooker. I was just looking for somehow to find release from that fear. Yeah. And later, Howard, I found out fear paralyzed me. Too much fear. And when I couldn't respond and mm -hmm. I was paralyzed, I would feel such a shame as if I'm lazy. Mm -hmm. I'm not getting up. And so it was almost the fear of fear coming on mm. that I was dousing the alcohol to try to, to take it away. Mm. Yeah. When you got out of college and you started the business, had you already started drinking or was that yet to come? I had started drinking. Uh, two years into my university uh, career, uh, something really bad happened. An uncle of mine 
got me involved in something that I didn't know uh-huh. that pulled the cops in. And that was so scary that I had started drinking, but I wasn't, you know, I hated the taste of alcohol, I hated mm-hmm. the smell of alcohol, I hated the behavior people mm-hmm. had with alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very gradual turning on, mm. right? It, was, it wasn't, uh, you know, okay, this is acceptable, you know, we can't do ecstasy because that's not acceptable in the business world, right? And so alcohol is the lube that makes the world go around. And so, you know, I am just a red-blooded American who works hard, plays hard. uh, And part of playing hard and being accepted is drinking hard. Right. You know, Uh, this was the mid-90s. Right. Right. So, yeah, that's how. and And it gradually developed and the addiction gradually developed and gradually developed. And, and although I never thought alcohol was an issue, I got my first DWI in 1997, mm-hmm. uh, and I went to rehab really to stop doing cocaine and ecstasy. Because hmm. once I started touching that, I couldn't stop. The alcohol I could still put down for the moment. So the alcohol was the social lubricant for you in the early years of your business. Yeah. Were you replicating your parents' uh, work ethic? Were you working the 7 in the morning to 11 at night shifts? No. um, I just had a big drive within me to succeed. It was huge. It felt good. It was normal. Uh, I was grateful to have a path to put that energy into. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I wanted to show all those English friends that he made it, right? Although nobody ever thought I would not make it, and only one, even the house that I picked and the cars that I drove, I'd be like, you know, they'll look at this and they'll go, he made it. And, And the fact is that only one of my mates ever came, or a couple of them came to come visit me, and, and they would love me anyways. Yeah. It was just in my own head. I used that as an edge to push myself even further. Yeah, people talk about that imposter syndrome, that sense that mm-hmm. that we're not being genuine to other people because we're more interested in what they think of, what, of, of how they think we're feeling about ourselves than we are actually feeling. It went hand in hand with the success, though. You could afford the things that would put the cloak over the way you were really feeling, couldn't you? Look, rationalism is beautiful. Look at me. I'm an American. I am a hard-gunning, capitalistic, entrepreneurial American, and this is what I do, and this is how I live, and, and mm. you know, it's all good. So you came... Uh, right out of college to the U.S., or I what was your... I came in 1986, right oh. after high school. Okay. And then I went, like all good Muslims, right. I went to a Catholic university, University of St. Thomas, <laughs> uh, for college. Uh, that was 1986. So you were here during the boom years and the bust years of the city and the industry? Yeah, but I really was not very aware of it. My GPA was 3.98, and... I was focused on my studies and being the rugby and, and so forth. So 
you know, I was not engaged in any ups or downs, and yeah, uh, yeah. and the business that I went into, which surprise, surprise, uh, was recession proof. So whether the economy was going up or down, we were going up and expanding. So drinking entered the picture early in that building of the business. At what point did you find, did you sense that it might be getting in the way? I never thought the drinking got in the way. Really? No. Huh. Uh, I just was very weary. I didn't want to touch cocaine. I got introduced to it in 1995, and I would do it maybe only every six months or something, huh. you know, and it gradually, I knew with ecstasy in college that I couldn't touch it because I would not stop. I did, would never want to stop feeling that way, so I would pop another pill, I would pop another pill until your bloody face looks different, right? And, uh, and so I knew I had a problem there. And so, you know, just like a great game of whack-a-mole, yeah. I put that stuff away and up popped the drinking. Uh-huh. And, and I thought it, all my mates, you know, this is Houston, Texas, and a lot of them were Latinos and yeah. part of the... Uh, part of the rugby team and so you know we all drank I thought the same way yeah right you mentioned that the, the trouble that you felt like ecstasy or cocaine would cause in your previous experience with it was sufficient for you to kind of put it away for a while and then you flip to the alcohol when you, it's clear to you that you can't be doing the drugs right did you seek out the same feeling from the alcohol that you got with those drugs? You know, b being married into a Catholic family, it was wonderful mm -hmm. being mm -hmm. an alcoholic. I, my wife would always say, she's so sweet, she's like, you are so nice to always want to hang around my family. <laughs> no shit. I mean, I could drink around her family, easily and nobody says anything, right? It's, it's, it's accepted. I couldn't do that on my side of the family. Yeah. And I wouldn't want to do that because the shame would be too great. So there was heavy drinking on in her family? Well, I think it was, it's acceptable. Just acceptable. It's a, okay. And again, yeah. the theme is the same. We're looking for acceptance. Yeah. And I am looking for acceptance. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking for what is socially acceptable. And when I'm doing things that is not, that's does, does not make me look good, I go underground. So when I did cocaine and stuff, I would not go back home. I would go lock myself up in, in a hotel room because I was, the shame was so great of doing drugs. I'm trying to get a sense of the time frames here. Mm -hmm. You had experience with the drugs and then you, in starting the business with drinking being socially acceptable and in a business sense acceptable and then the transition then again to active regular use of the drugs. Can you kind of lay out for me the, the, the beginning, the middle and the end of what that looked like? The beginning was at college, two years in, when I found I had that happening, well, running with the law, and that sparked the start of drinking and taking up the ecstasy, right? right. And so that started it off. It was a weekly habit, you know, on the weekend type of stuff. It wasn't problematic at that point? It was a it was getting problematic because 
now I could see withdrawn pass, withdrawn pass, withdrawn, not finishing off school properly, 3.98 GPA going down to 3.0, you know, having to do withdrawn mm-hmm. pass. So you can see the patterns now of, of where it had the effect. Uh, and then there was a, I'm not going to do this shit, I've graduated, I need to put all my energy into my business. And so there was three or four years of just absolute, you know, workaholism, right? Uh-huh. Uh, almost seven or eight. And then it was, I'm going to start drinking at home. I, I remember this very clearly. Uh-huh. Uh, 1992 or three, I brought a bottle of wine and I brought it home. And I said to my wife, I said, let's have a glass of wine together. Huh. And, and I remember that glass of wine figuratively and realistically start getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, you know, rum and coke and then so forth and then the parties and then going out to the clubs. Mm. So it spiked from 93 up to 97 in a manner that 97 I got a DWI, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I was driving around town. I mean, I remember thinking... I bought my first house in the Heights in 91. And the reason I bought it there and stayed there was because I knew that a taxi ride to downtown to the club was $12. And so I didn't have to, I'm like, I mean, can you imagine? Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense to an alcoholic. I'm I'm like, I can go party, (laughs) and I didn't have to drive. It'd be $12 back home. Yeah. You know, it's just, and it's five minutes, six yeah, minutes. The, the surest way to avoid a DWI is to just not drive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So that period of time from 93 until... 97. 97, four hard years. Four hard years. I got a DWI. I promise you, even to today, Howard, it was because my wife was a blonde, I was driving a Mercedes, and the policeman was a white guy. That's why he gave me the ticket. Right. That's the storyline. It's yeah. beside the point that I am over the limit and I'm drunk. So yeah. I was sent to AA and I hated it. Uh, it was people that I could not connect with. These were all losers that didn't have jobs. They were smoking cigarettes and they were all whining about their issues. And this is after one DWI. This is after one DWI. So. The, the judge, when you went up in front of the judge, were you given choices or were you just ordered to do AA? What, what, what kind of sentence did you they know, I, I can't quite remember. I do remember that the book was thrown at me. It was? Yes, uh, and quite rightly so. I believe part of the deal was you had to go to AA meetings. Uh-huh. Right? Okay. And, and there was not jail time. Right. But there was a conviction. Okay, right. yeah. So the, they ordered you to go and have a paper signed? Paper signed, yeah. And it was at three meetings a week, or was it I, every day? I can't quite remember, but I remember I was not a happy camper. What did you think when you first walked in the door and when you saw the first room that you went into? It was somewhere upstairs. It was smoky, and I had nothing in common with these people. Mm-hmm. You know, they yeah. have work issues, they're, they're the black sheep of the family, you, you know, I mean, just on and on and on. Yeah. You know, my clothes smelt of cigarettes after the meeting. It's like these guys are so depressing. All they talk about is their problems. 
So as you went back, because of being court-ordered, how long was the period that you were court-ordered? I think about three or four months. So you're a guy who, from your earlier life, knew how to fit in where you needed to for whatever goal you were trying to achieve. And in this case, you got to keep the paper signed, you got to keep the court happy. What were those three or four months in AA like for you? Well, it was really miserable. I'm like, how can you go to a meeting a week? Huh. An hour a week? Don't you have anything better to do? <laughs> I mean, it was just ghastly. Did anybody reach out to you? Were there people watching you and saying, hey, man? Yeah, I must have been just too standoffish where don't even come near me, right? Just, I remember being put in jail and I was wearing a Canali jacket and a guy come up to me and said, hey, man, what's a cat like you doing in a place like this? I said, screw off. I'm from Colombia. And they, they all left me. <laughs> and so, you know, so oh, that, that was a, my similar thing. I didn't want anything to do with people from AA. Yeah. I didn't want anything to do with that meeting, those people. I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Everybody drinks like I do. I was the only one that was stopped. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. So once you finished that commitment, yeah. you took your paper back fully signed. That was the end of that commitment? So, you know, this is, this is such a classic, you know, God doing for us what we can do for ourselves. So I was also had to do some service work. Oh, community service. Community yeah. work. And so my daughters were very little. They were like uh, three and four or something like that. And so I'm like, okay, this is going to be a great and. I'm going to do community service, and I'm going to take my daughters with me, and I'm going to teach them. And so we did <laughs> Meals on Wheels from the interfaith. And so we would take groceries. I would go pick up groceries yeah. from, you know, Montrose. Yeah. Uh, and then we would go deliver them to old people's homes yeah. in yeah. the poor neighborhoods and stuff. And my girls would come, and they're like, we love going with our daddy. Oh, we wow. go, we go give grandma and grandpa <laughs> food, and so, you know, and and they and they still remember, and they're like, oh my god, now they're twenty eight and twenty six, yeah. and they're like, oh my god, that that was because of your DWI, and you told us we were just doing this as a good deed. So <laughs> now they wow. laugh at it. So, wow, yeah. wow, that's yeah. a, that's a pretty amazing that they acknowledge how important that that really was yeah. for you at the yeah. time. It was important for them. For them, yeah. They enjoyed it. Right. And you you had to do it anyway, so yeah. it was a way to stay close to the girls while you were doing what you had to do. Absolutely. So at the end of that, what, what was next? So uh, that's 97. Uh, by this time, business has grown enormously. Mm. And 
I am so stressed out that, you know, that I'm driving around Houston with bags of cash filled in my trunk. Mm. And now my cocaine habit is picking up. Mm. So I started that in 94, and now I, instead of every six months, it's every month, and then whenever I touch it, I'm gone for a day or so, and I'm making excuses at home, and, and the old pattern of you know, driving around going, shit, I don't want to turn in here, I don't want to turn in here, turning I'm in. turning in. Yeah. And you know, and tick, 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 yeah. And so cash flow issues were a huge trigger. Mm-hmm. Robbing Peter to pay Paul, et cetera, et cetera. There's a reason that my sobriety date is 416, one day after tax. <laughs> 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 I thought it would be convenient and safe place to hide away. Oh my, uh, yeah. And so, you know, I was just, controlling things that were way out of my control and the fear of those things happening and affecting my business and thus affecting my identity and my ego as the hero successful child that has made good yeah i just could not manage that pressure who just happens to be a drug addict who happens to be a drug addict as my drug addiction kept taking place. I'd started a new business in, two, in 98 and 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like a good alcoholic, I thought, that's the business. So I sold my locations, lock, stock, and barrel, to, mm-hmm. uh, and then ran from that business into another one. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, wherever you are, there you are. And so uh, that came with me. And uh, my friends would tell me, bro, you're, you know, I mean, they would leave clubs at two o'clock in the morning. And they said, they would say they were drinkers, and I'd be high, and I didn't want to show it to them. And they would grab me and they say, you are leaving this club with us. We're not going to leave you behind. Yeah. I'm like, just let me be. And, And so we'd be leaving the club. And what I would do is I would make a circle, leave the club, drive around, and come back in. And those guys were smart enough to be standing there going. <laughs> so yeah. my friends were noticing it. And a lo- most of my friends did not do drugs. They did alcohol. Uh, and they would go home at 2 o'clock. This guy stayed out for another two to three days. Wow. And that was becoming troublesome, being a father, being a husband, you know, being, you know, the joke was Faisal is so Mexican that he doesn't just celebrate Cinco de Mayo, he celebrates Cinco de Seis, uh, Seis de Mayo, Siete de Mayo, Ocho de Mayo, and he's gone for three days. Three days. Yeah. That, That must have been wreaking havoc at home. It was wreaking havoc everywhere. The shame and the guilt. Yeah. Um, and and I tried so many different ways to not do this. I would pray to God driving, please don't let me do this. Don't let me do this. The final straw uh-huh. uh, came about in 2006 uh, uh, where I, I kissed my two little daughters. They were 9-11 and it was Good Friday next day. And uh, Good Friday is a big event in our home. I take the girls to visit 
my wife's mom. And I said, I'll be right back. And I went to go have three, four drinks with a mate of mine. You know, we talked about how great my life is, how wonderful my kids are. Yeah. And I had three or four double cranberry and vodkas with a splash of lime. And I got in my car and I was going to go home. And, you know, as usual, for two, three minutes, something takes over the wheel and I'm at the club scoring drugs mm. and I'm disappeared for three days. Mm-hmm. I come to after three days and I've missed 25 calls. Everybody's looking for me mm. and the message is, I just need to know you're alive. Mm. And uh, I get in my car after those three days of drugging and I'm so desolate. I can hear the four horsemen and mm. I just decide to crash my car. I don't know if that was crashing my car was a way to get out of the pickle that I'm in or if it was really an attempt to suicide. I, I still can't tell you. So Well, it would serve both purposes if it was accomplished, yes, right? Yes, yes. And so, and so my wife said, hey, we love you, but we're not going to wait around and watch you kill yourself. I've taken the girls and I've left. And the sadness of hurting my kids and my wife so much was so great that it literally it broke my heart yeah and uh, huh. and and that's when I was willing to do whatever it was and I went to rehab that was your moment of, of clarity it was had your wife ever threatened to do that before or were there attempts that she and others made to try and do something for you prior to that moment of clarity that you had for yourself my wife held the rest of the world at bay for me. Meaning, my dad would say, are you okay to my wife? Do you want me to speak to him? And she'd say, oh no, dad, that's okay. He's all right, he'll, he'll be okay. He's, he's, he's trying really hard and stuff. So my dad could sense something. So she was an enabler in a big way. She was, and she was trying to protect me yeah. and enable me. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a very confusing it's state. It's tough. Yeah, it's I a know. tough state, you know. And then she was my best buddy drinking. I love hanging out with my wife today. I loved hanging out with her back then. And, and so I'm sure to a certain degree she felt a little guilty that I drink with him. Right, but you were you were also doing the drugs at that I time, I was also too. doing the so drugs. So you went way beyond whatever you had with her. Absolutely crossed all boundaries yeah. and then reversed the car and ran it back over them again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you just go into rehab on your own? After three days, doors were locked. I called a friend of mine and I said, would you come and pick me up? And I went from the Derrick Hotel uh-huh. the first night <laughs> to the Palace Inn <laughs> okay. on right. 290. Right. And for those who are listening, the two should never mix together. Right, right. So he came to pick me up at the Palace Motel, uh, he took me to his house, and for four days I detoxed on my own at his house. And I'm pretty savvy, so I could see the writing on the wall that my wife was not interested in talking to me and stuff. She, she, I had literally broken her. And so I felt like rehab was a good place to go and fade the heat for a while. Uh-huh. But I was going to go for seven to eight days because I have payroll to make, I have business to run. Sure. There's no bloody way we're doing mm-hmm. 28 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and luckily enough, 
within those eight or nine days, the reality that this gorilla is on your back mm -hmm. had planted itself. And then, you know, just like I've seen so many more men and women do that those who want to get sober just will not let go of the bit and will do whatever it takes for sobriety. Was that you at that point? That was me at that point. That was you yeah. at that point. And, and, and I've always been very good at doing one thing amazingly well. So this carries over into rehab as well. Yeah. So when you went into rehab, was it seven or eight days that you had that realization about the gorilla? Yeah. You mentioned that. How much longer did you stay and what was the handoff afterwards after rehab? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I was desolate for the first two weeks. I yeah. was crying because I, on my soul, there was a 600-pound weight on a needle head, and it absolutely broke me that I would broken my wife and my kids, and that was so abhorrent to what I had seen uh -huh. from my own father, who is a wonderfully sweet honorable, great dad, great husband. Yeah. Uh, so it was so, uh, you know, it, it broke me, literally, yeah. right? People said, hey, you need, to, you need to quit crying and you need to pay attention or else you're not going to get what these guys are teaching you in here. Yeah. Uh, and so I would sit in the front, uh -huh. I would take notes, and I had a running buddy, uh -huh. um, and we would sit there, and we would, and we would push each other through rehab, and take notes. Finish the rehab. My uh, counselor told me you need to go to uh, sober living, and every cell in my body said, "F no, mm. mm -hmm. I am not going living with 19-year-old numbnuts and cleaning their bathrooms." Mm -hmm. I'm too hip, slick, and cool. I come from a Muslim family. My parents don't drink. I can go live with them. I can go get an apartment. And she said, oh, you want to take control back, do you? <laughs> I'm like, shit. And so just like I've seen for so many other people in good recovery, we do things against our own feeling. We take instructions even though every cell in our body says, yeah. hell no. And so... You know, under the lash of alcoholism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, and so I went, and those 19-year-old kids saved my ass because I was not sure how I was going to survive in the outside world because it was the same triggers and the same business pressures. And when was I going to get chewed up and spit out of the other end? And so... The sober living place gave me a pied de terre yeah. just to rest my head, go to work. And when they told me go to one meeting a day, yeah. uh, you know, like a lot of us, I'm an over, I'm like, screw that. I'm doing, there's one son of a, I cannot trust, and that's me. Yeah. Because so many years I said, I'm not going to do this. On the, I swear on my kid's life, I'm not going to do this. On my parent, on my, you know, mm -hmm. I, and I'd done it. So the, the, quite rightly, I was very suspicious of myself. Uh -huh. And so when they said go to one meeting, no, 
I went to three. I would go to 6.30 a.m. I'd go to a noon meeting like we. Yeah, like this, this one. one. I've yeah. come, been coming to this one since my rehab. Yeah. And, uh, and I would go to a 6.30 p.m. meeting and then go to my three-quarters house and go to sleep there and repeat for 60 days. So how long a time were you in uh, halfway to three-quarters? 60 days. During that time is when you started to get involved with AA and going to meetings? Absolutely. Right. And, and then all those losers, yeah. right, and all those whiners became gurus and prophets. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and, and everything that they said yeah. went from my head into my soul, into my heart. And luckily, I have a very good sense of self-survival. Sure. And so I went to really good meetings where there was really good recovery. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you go into a 6.30 a.m. meeting, Howard, you're committed. You're committed. Yeah. And, and that says a lot. So, I mean, you know, thank God you had that kind of drive from other parts of your life to lead you through AA. But you had also you had previous experience with AA that wasn't very favorable. How did that get in the way, or was it swept out of the way pretty quickly once it you was, got in? It was swept. You know, when it's a matter of self-survival and survival of the identity. So I remember thinking this in rehab, I don't mind dying. Huh. I don't mind dying. Yeah. But I don't want to die in a cheap motel with drug paraphernalia and leave that <laughs> as a heritage or legacy for my daughters. Oh yeah, that would be rough. I said, I don't want to die like that. And so that was so strong inside of me. I am somewhat obsessive compulsive. And so what happened was that pain of hurting your own kids and your wife, it flipped that obsessive compulsiveness from drug addiction to recovery. Then it was all about recovery. I get that. Yeah, and, and, and the fact is that, look, the 60 days, I'm really grateful for being outside of my house and right. in a sober living place because the 60 days gave me time to do all these meetings yeah. and develop relationships with men like you mm -hmm. or go to lunch afterwards at Luby's that we we used to do or the evening go out. And I dove into the middle of the fellowship and I was able to soak it in. Yeah. So when my wife and I had reconciled after 90 days, when I got back home, then it was very convenient for me to go to do my AA meeting at 6.30 a.m. and get that done, go to work, and maybe a couple of times a week go hit a noon meeting, get back to work, right. and then be back home before 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the evening. I used to do that too when I was in early recovery. Because I was in sales and marketing and I was in charge of my own calendar, I would go to noon meetings, which were transparent to the home life. And I'd do a couple evening meetings a week, but you know, they didn't interfere. They did interfere to a certain extent with my business, mm -hmm. you know, because I was spending more time at the AA club than I was at work. But I sorted that out after a while. But at least it wasn't getting in the way of the family. So you came in, you came off of this like 180 meetings in 30 days or what, how you came off a lot of meetings. Yep. You were on the right track at that point to staying involved. So from that point, did you never look back? Not till today, thank huh. you, God. Yeah. I mean, I did that 6.30 meeting this morning. And I would say that the first 
few years of my recovery, I abdicated a lot of my duties at work. Uh, and abdicated may be a nice way of saying all I did was freaking recovery. Yeah, right? uh, I get and, that. And, uh, and, but that's what I needed yeah. to create a foundation so that the universe can use me today to be of service. Uh, and I still have that business. And there's more of a balance of I need to take care of this, I need to take care of myself, yeah. I need to take care of my family, my kids. It, is in, it seems to me that it is in better balance today. But initially, it was, you know, just like an obsessive compulsive guy, it was all in into AA. When did that start to settle down for you? Was there a turning point from that to something else? And what, was, what did that look like? Uh, so I got sober in 2006. The recession hit in 2008. Right. And my biggest customer went under, mm. or was going under, was not able to pay over $700,000 in their bills. The bank laws changed, and my bank pulled my line of credit and said, we need the 900000 back. And, and that was another bottoming, and this was the bottoming of the ego vis-a-vis success, successful business, money. So by that time, you already had a couple of years of success in yeah. AA. Yeah. You were yeah. staying sober. Your yeah. marriage was back together. Yeah. Everything was looking good. Success there only to face the failure of the business. Oh, and it was, you know, feeling the bottoming of your identity. Wow. You know, it's uh, a lot of us I've seen have, done, have faced that with financial issues. Yeah, and most of us who have, and I have too, um, at different uh, different junctures, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do the podcast to begin with, was because everybody can identify with what it was like and with what happened part of most people's stories. Okay, mm-hmm. everybody's got that. But the question is, will I be able to stay sober through name whatever you want to name, good or bad? And so, the, so was that the first time that you really encountered a challenge to your sobriety? I wasn't going to use or drink, right? but how to deal with the emasculation. And what I mean by that mm-hmm. is, I am the oldest boy, I'm the oldest active cousin out of 48 in a Asian family uh-huh. uh, who is oldest boy is meant to be in charge. And I have had invested in me from the age of seven educational and resources yeah. that only princes and kings sure. have mm-hmm. from a middle class family. And I am very cognizant of what my family has done for me. And so fast forward, this success, this business yeah. is really to show mom that mom, I did good. And so I was looking after not only my mom and dad, or, or this business, looking after mom and dad. I had four other cousins who had moved here from Pakistan mm. and their mom. Mm-hmm. So that was another five. I had my sister, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so that's six, seven, eight. And then I had my two girls, nine, ten, and my wife, eleven, and wow. me, twelve. So, you know, my identity was all around 
you know, I look after my family, I do this. And so when that business was going, I'm like, how are they going to survive? Mm. Who's going to feed them? That's a primal fear, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And what are people going to think and say? And how low have I come? And, And it's funny, now I look back and go, bro, the whole economy was broken in 2008, 2009. You're not that unique, but right. my ego would not well, let sure. me off the hook. And so it was feeling this bottoming, this cutting away of the ego, this emasculation, stone cold sober. And that was a very, very, very dark so in the midst of this financial and business crisis and all the other things that were going on, you were still making regular meetings. I kin recovery like a life jacket. Right. You have a life jacket on, you're in the sea. When the seas are calm, guess what? Beautiful, just lay back and relax. You, can, you know you can relax, you're going with the flow. It's a beautiful day. When the hurricane's coming, and the seas are up and down, you know it's gonna be choppy, but you know you're not gonna drown. Yeah, you've got that life jacket. You've got the life jacket. And so the one consistent thing over the 16 and a half years, my life jacket has been my meeting count has never gone down. Uh-huh. I, do, I do virtually at least a meeting a day. Meeting a day, yeah, meeting a day. Uh, And the reason is because 6.30 a.m. is a great way to wake up. I meditate during my meeting, Uh and it's a good way for me to start my day. Would you say that that period of when you faced all this and got through it, was there a spiritual component to that? Was there a spiritual awakening part of that? Or was it more about the realization that AA was saving you? The main learning is, hey, bro, you don't feed your parents, you don't feed your kids, you can't even breathe on your own. Something in this universe feeds you. Yeah. And it was the culling of the ego. Hmm. The, the identity needed to be rounded off from the hero child. Yeah. I never want that leveling off again. <laughs> yeah, I right? blame you. But it must have been needed, Howard, yeah. somewhere. Well, what's interesting about it is that we get through those times and we look back and we see how God was working in our life and how it got us through that situation. And yet the next situation we go into, we're still in doubt of whether or not it's going to... And his, his track record's 100%, yeah. but yet I go into the next thing thinking, well, maybe not this time, but it always seems to work out. Well, I mean, it goes back to our nature as human beings. I yeah. mean, you know, we need to be careful of the tiger coming and eating us. That's in our DNA. Is it safe to say you embraced the program and, and drew yourself closer to the center to get through it? Absolutely. What I would do is I would do bookends. Huh. I would do a 6.30 a.m. meeting, and then I would do a 6.30 p.m. meeting before going home. Yeah. And so I would be able to process a lot of the stuff because I didn't want to take it all home. Uh-huh. And the one thing I would also share is I play racquetball. Yeah. And that was critical. The that was physical. The physical exercise. I call it exorcism. The combination of recovery and exercise was, uh, I mean, that's where the diamond was made, right? And a big part of that is I went to a hospital recovery center 
And when I was in the recovery center, I attended a men's meeting, process meeting. So when I was in there, I was in that circle. When I left the recovery center, I would come back for that meeting and six or seven months of being outside of it, I started leading that meeting and 16 and a half years go by and I do that meeting every Monday. I get to go back and share with the guys who are completely down and out of, I've been where you're at and here are some of the things that I did. And so that has been my cornerstone. That is at Monday at noon, and as you know, Mm -hmm. business guys, Mm -hmm. Mondays, whether you're busy or not, your mind is busy. Right, absolutely. (laughs) Look busy. Uh, (laughs) But I've completely carved that moment out. And so no matter where I travel, internationally and stuff, you know, nowadays Zoom is available. Yeah, sure, But back in the day, you know, you go, find the meeting where you need to find it and yeah. uh, go to meetings everywhere. I'm so glad to hear you talking in such concrete terms about the importance of meetings and about the bookends and about carving the time to make sure that you can be where you need to be, having that weekly commitment that you fulfilled for 16 years. Can you think of a couple of other times within that 16-year period where you could look back on, uh, let's say, a particularly tough time or a particularly joyous time where your AA played a big role? Yeah, um, all little brown boys are really mama's boys. Right. Uh, we, you know, we love our mamas. Uh, the ultimate unconditional love that is given to the oldest son yes. is almost embarrassing. But my mom <laughs> unconditionally loved me, and she was a hard cookie, man. Yeah. She was four yeah. feet tall and six feet deep. Um, <laughs> so uh, we had to leave Lebanon because yeah. she slapped Yasser Arafat, oh, who's no. the head of the PLO. Oh, no. So you can imagine this woman, right? I mean, she is charged. Um, and so... Um, Literally or figuratively? I mean, literally. literally. <laughs> oh, my God. We had to leave in 1982. Oh, my. Yeah. Oof. Um, and so, because she felt that he misappropriated some right, funds, right. which never happens to politicians. Uh, and so, mom had been really ill for the last, since for 15, 16 years. And part of my fuel for addiction and alcoholism was I could not reconcile how a good son could not fix his mother's illness. Mm. And whenever I would go to see her and see her in pain and leave, I would feel so powerless Mm. and so uh, devastated for her pain Mm -hmm. that I could not reconcile it. So I would drink a lot and stuff, but okay, so fast forward 2020 and mom passed away in 2020 and as we are putting her in the ground and you know we have the same tradition as the Jews mm-hmm. within 24 hours you got to sure. wrap that up right. in a white cloth and put her in uh, I'm standing next to a younger cousin and they're putting her in the ground and I look at him and I'm going you know what man there's two things I'm not feeling. And he goes, what are you talking about? I go, there's two things I'm not feeling. I'm not feeling any shame Mm. 
because I know that now she knows that I've done my best. Yeah. And that I'm not high or drunk and that I am a good husband, a father, and a son. Mm -hmm. And I don't have any regrets because I did the best I could for my mom. Mm -hmm. And now surely she knows because she sees my heart. She's not here, but she sees all. And Mm. that was a terribly difficult time, but it was also a beautiful time. It felt like it felt like I had lived my values and done okay by my mama. Mm. What a beautiful realization. Yeah. That's the beauty of AA is it, it gives this, well, we don't know what happens after death, right? but I choose to believe it is good. Yeah, I get that. Whatever it is. I get that, and yeah. yeah. Which, which brings us to what I wanted to ask you about, and that was your sponsorship and some of the service work. I hear what you do on Mondays and everything. What, in addition, do you do to keep your program fresh yeah. and, and uh, vibrant? And, and I want to preface this with, I just happen to be that guy that can smile, shake hands, give you a hug. <laughs> I did not do anything to deserve that. Yeah. It's just, it's who I am. That's who you are. I am yeah. a cheerleader. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'm just blessed. Yeah. Uh, and so I preface this by saying that, I try to keep two sponsees at any time going through the steps. And I try to do it consistently in terms of recovery. Sometimes, you know, sometimes right now it's at three, but it has been at one as well. Um, and so, so my idea is you never know who's sponsoring who. Yeah, yeah. Really. I mean, if you're ready and open, you know, this is a circular process, right? Uh, and you don't know who's giving and who's taking. Mm. Funny joke, a friend of mine, Morgan, would say, a good AA meeting is like a good orgy. You never know who to thank. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so, He's a character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's a character. Uh, and so, um, you know, so I'm, uh, I have that personality. I'm an extrovert. Yeah. It's easy for me. What I really honor and appreciate is the guys who do the sponsorship and all of that stuff, that it's not easy. For right, them. right. For me, it's it's really easy. And for me too. And, and that's why I think you and I, were cut from a lot of the same kind yeah. of cloth here. But when I see other guys struggling with it, I think we still have to be there demonstrating that it can be done with enjoyment and with commitment and with accountability. And it sounds to me like you've got that built into your program. I'm just a good junkie, Howard. <laughs> I, I've, you are. I've tasted the goods. Yeah, you have. You I've have. felt the spiritual experience. Yeah, I've yeah, worked the steps. Yeah. I've seen people's yeah. eyes light up. Uh-huh. I've given guys hugs who are down on their lugs in business and said, hey, this is what happened to me. And I've shared that goodness and I've felt that goodness what I say to people, they're like, Ben, you are always smiling. I go, bro, if you knew how much love is poured into me from people, all that comes out of you then is love, right? Yeah, I love that. So it's kind of a, I'm just an addict. I've just found something that really works really well with very little consequences, and it helps everybody. Well, this has just been a remarkable time, and I'm so grateful to you for doing this and sharing with me 
I admire you, I honor you, you're an inspiration. I love you and I'm so glad to call you my friend and my brother in Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you so much, Howard. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Faisal N., for sharing his story. And also thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Consider it the hand of AA members reaching out to other alcoholics across the country and throughout the world. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this podcast series by following the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.